I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we'll be focusing on the Japanese nuclear emergency following last Friday's terrible earthquake and tsunami but we'll also be trying to wrap our minds around multiple universes. Imagine that our universe is like a huge slice of bread. Every star, every galaxy is on that slice of bread. The math of string theory suggests that there could be other slices of bread out there, other brain universes floating, if you will, in a grand cosmic loaf. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Both our regulars are here with me, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council, and my colleague Andrew Jack, FT Pharmaceuticals Correspondent. And we're joined by Richard Wakeford of the University of Manchester's Dalton Nuclear Institute. Now, no one really knows what's going on at the stricken Fukushima nuclear plant in Japan. It seems now that in addition to problems at the three reactors that were operating when the earthquake hit on Friday, there are now difficulties at some of the other reactors which were offline at the time. And there seems to be a particular problem in a cooling pond for spent nuclear fuel at the number four reactor. I know you don't have any real inside knowledge, Richard, but as a nuclear expert, what do you think is going on? Um, Well, Clive, to be perfectly honest, I don't know. And and in fact, there are a number of experts from from different nuclear disciplines together this morning. And we were discussing what this might mean. Uh, and it wasn't clear to, to any of us. Uh, so, so just to clarify, this was at the Science Media Centre. This was at the Science Media Centre, yes. So I, I think until you actually know the definitive details or or are able to put these things into context, it, it's really very difficult to come to any any reliable conclusion, unfortunately. Is your impression that the people on the ground who are obviously having a terrible time and being very, very, very brave in the process. Do you think the operators for TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, know what's going on? Do you think the Japanese government, which is issuing statements, sometimes contradictory statements, knows what's going on? I mean, how much control does anyone have? Well, I would say that they have a reasonable idea of what's going on at the site itself, at Fukushima itself. I mean, as you rightly say, and I'm glad you mentioned this, Clive, I mean, these are very brave people. I mean, this is heroic, really. When you've seen the, the hydrogen reactions that have, that have taken place, um, and working under those conditions to try and keep these reactors under control, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable thought, really. But uh, certainly at the site, there would be managing the doses of these workers who are carrying out this emergency work to ensure they didn't reach unacceptable levels in terms of early effects and to try and keep the the fuel at a reasonable temperature to try and keep the pressure in this big flask which contains the fuel to a reasonable level. So I think that they know broadly what they're doing, although, of course, just what detailed information they have on the ground is another matter. But when it goes beyond that, I'm not too sure. 
Andrew, you were at the Science Media Centre briefing with Richard and his fellow experts. What did you make of it? Well, yeah, I mean, clearly everyone's somewhat fighting in the dark, aren't they? But, but the message that came out to me certainly seemed to be some degree of confidence that the Japanese authorities were doing pretty much all that was expected that was is best practice. But I wonder, you know, Richard, what's your sense? I mean, we've got this explosion zone around the reactors. Worst case scenario, even if there were to be some more severe um, emission of radioactive particles, what's your sense about, you know, how much danger there is, particularly drawing on past precedents, Chernobyl and others? Yes, absolutely. The Chernobyl accident is quite important in this context. Clearly, the, the Japanese authorities are doing the right thing. They've evacuated people out to... 20 kilometres. They've essentially put a food ban in place in the area uh, and they've got um, stable iodine tablets ready to, ready to issue. And these, these are exactly the things that the old Soviet authorities in the locality of Chernobyl did not do. They didn't evacuate the people in time. They allowed in particular children to drink contaminated milk and they didn't issue stable iodine tablets in time. And this is why we're now seeing several thousand thyroid cancers. Many of those cancers were preventable if the authorities had taken the appropriate action at the time. I think the Japanese authorities, learning from, particularly from that situation, are doing just the right thing. One of the things that's rather regrettable from this is the way panic is caused about nuclear power in the UK from this story. How much of what's in the papers today for people to read is true? Understandably, there's confusion, there's misunderstanding. I've heard it said that one of these reactors could go up like a nuclear bomb, an atomic bomb. Well, that, that clearly is physically impossible. I mean, it just could not happen. I mean, the, these things work with low enrichment uranium anyway, so even if they were intact, it would not be possible to do that. Do you think there's any chance of what optimists in the industry were calling a nuclear renaissance can continue anywhere in the world after this? It very much depends on what happens in the long run. And clearly what we're, we're now four days in, aren't we? So, uh, you know, the longer, the longer we go in, the cooler the, the, the core gets. In other words, the less radioactive decay heat is, is being generated in the core. We're dealing, of course, with 40-year-old reactors here. These are early second-generation reactors. We're now way, way beyond that in design. The reactors that we're talking about now is being planned to be built in Britain, the third-generation light-water reactors could not behave like these old uh, second-generation reactors. I was going to ask that, I mean, and, and you hear sometimes also about the gravity-powered approach to kind of closing yeah. down reactors and so on. I mean, what are some of the lessons and that have been learned? Cooling, yes. You, know, you have to bear in mind, uh, you know, it's a sobering thought, really, that, that, that these, uh, well, at least uh, uh, Fukushima Unit 1, uh, which, uh, as I recall, went online in 1971, operated all the way through Three Mile Island in, in the States, where a lot of lessons were learned in 1979, all through Chernobyl in 1986. So, I mean, the, this sort of puts these, these reactors in, into context. And the loss of coolant accident, uh, the locker, has always been in the forefront of people's minds. And, of course, a lot of changes were made after Three Mile Island in, in, in the States, where they did manage to melt a significant proportion of the, of the core, but not have a major, a major release. So you know, a lot's been learned, a lot of different aspects have been made of the design and as I say um, the, the the reactors that are being planned today would not behave like these old uh, early second generation reactors. What's also very interesting though is that the whole earthquake and tsunami has emphasised our dependence on power and with Japan now having power cuts and quite a lot of things slow down because of the lack of power and the impact in the economy yeah. 
Um, if they don't go nuclear, then it's a very, very difficult debate for, for Japan in the future. It's immensely difficult for Japan because Japan, like France, after the OPEC oil crisis in the, in the early 1970s, uh, decided because, just as you say, no, no natural resources, that, that they, they really couldn't find themselves dependent upon foreign uh, sources of energy. So they went for nuclear, just like France. Um, and they've now got to make some pretty hefty decisions as to what they're going to do about this. Before we move on to parallel universes where this accident hasn't happened, what do you think the outcome's going to be from the knowledge you have? And, and I know that there are surprises sprung almost every day. How do you expect things to go? The chances of there being a major radioactive release must recede as time goes on because the, you know, the, the, the core is getting cooler and therefore safer. Um, so um, I, I guess at the moment I'm, I'm optimistic, but surprises are sprung on us every day. So, And I'm not quite sure as yet what quite has happened in unit number two. It doesn't seem to be what happened in one and three, which were clearly hydrogen explosions, which, are, which were a result of the venting of the vessel. So um, it's not clear to me, at least as we sit here, just what's, just what's happened there at the moment. What about the worst case scenario? As you have said, there couldn't be another Chernobyl. What's the worst that could happen? Uh, I guess uh, some sort of a, a major release, a, a loss of containment, uh, which is what the Japanese authorities are, are, are planned for anyway by the evacuation and, uh, and the other restrictions they, they put in place. But even an accident as bad as Chernobyl, there is this clear signature of thyroid cancers amongst those irradiated as children. But in the absence of that, uh, which, as I say, were largely preventable, in the absence of that, there is no r clear signal of any adverse health effects that are attributable to, to, the, uh, to the release of radioactivity. Well, we obviously hope and pray for the best. And now, to cheer ourselves up, we're going to talk about parallel and multiple universes. Earlier I talked to Brian Green... Professor of Maths and Physics at Columbia University in New York, and author of a new book entitled The Hidden Reality. I started by asking Brian whether we can take it that most scientists believe there are multiple universes. Many cosmologists, many physicists recognize that our most refined mathematical attempts to understand the world around us, the stars, the galaxies, everything that we can see, those mathematical investigations are suggesting the possibility of universes beyond the one that we are familiar with. And we've learned that math really can be a gateway toward reality. So we are willing to take these ideas seriously, but we don't believe them until there's observational or experimental evidence. Before we go into the different variants of other universes there might be, perhaps we should start with a definition. What is a universe? In the old days, which means like a couple of years ago, universe meant everything, every star, every galaxy, the totality, the whole shebang. So the very notion of more than one universe would seemingly be a contradiction in terms. The recent investigations, though, are suggesting that what we thought to be everything in the past may actually be a small piece of something far bigger. And that far bigger thing has been given a new name, the multiverse, multiple universes, because there can be realms out there that should rightly be called universes if the one that we see around us has that name ascribed to it as well. So 
how do we make the distinction between different universes? The definition that allows us to distinguish the different universes in a given multiverse depends sensitively on which multiverse proposal we're talking about. So there are some variations in which the other universes are just so far away that we don't have contact with them. There are other variations in the multiverse theme where other universes can be hovering a millimeter away from us, but in another dimension. And that's why we don't see it. So it depends very much on which proposal we're talking about. Your book goes through nine broad proposals. Without taking up too much time, can you run through the menu of possibilities? One of them comes from the possibility that space goes on infinitely far. And if it does, it turns out that one can establish with pretty basic reasoning that there are realms way out there in space where the comings and goings in that realm mirror the comings and goings in this universe of ours. You and I are having this conversation out there in a distant realm of the cosmos. Another variation of the theme does come from the Big Bang Theory. We've tried to understand that in great detail in recent times and have come to the conclusion that the Big Bang may not have been a unique event. So on and on, as you described, there are nine that I go through in the book. And there's one different sort which you haven't mentioned, which it seems distinct from reading your book, which is that the quantum multi-worlds, in that here and now, every possibility that's happening in this universe is diverging in all possible directions. Quantum mechanics, the new idea that this theory forced upon us, is that the best you can do in physics is not predict how things will be, but the likelihood that things will be one way or another. In the time of Newton, basically we learned, according to his way of thinking about the universe, if you tell me the state of the world right now, I will predict the state of the world in five minutes or an hour with absolute certainty. But in quantum physics, that turns out to be wrong. That's an approximation. We learn in quantum physics that you tell me the state of the world now, and I can predict there's a 10% chance that things will turn out this way, 30% that way, and so forth. How do you go from the many possible outcomes to one definite reality? The quantum multiverse suggests that every possibility allowed by the laws of quantum physics is realized in its own separate realm. Now, you said at the beginning that none of this is proved. Could we, within our lifetimes get a better idea about whether any of these ideas are true? I absolutely hope so. One in particular that I'm most fond of, because it's a multiverse proposal that may receive experimental support in the shortest time frame, comes from string theory in my own field of research. There's a version of the multiverse we've not discussed called the brain multiverse. That's B-R-A-N-E. And it comes to the word membrane. The idea in string theory is that everything we know about may take place on a giant membrane, a three-dimensional membrane. It turns out we call it a three-brain. The two-dimensional version is easier to think about. Imagine that our universe is like a huge slice of bread. Every star, every galaxy is on that slice of bread. The math of string theory suggests that there could be other slices of bread out there, other brain universes floating, if you will, in a grand cosmic loaf. How would we test this strange idea? Well, the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland, slams protons against protons at fantastically high speed. And the math shows that the debris created from those collisions can, in principle, be ejected into the wider cosmos, the debris would take away a little bit of energy, which means there'd be less energy left on our brain universe for our detectors to measure than there was energy just before the collision. 
little missing energy signatures at the Large Hadron Collider, which physicists are now looking for, could be evidence that we live on one of these giant membranes, that there are other membrane universes out there. And you can hear my full interview with Brian Green online on ft.com. I think that's all we have time for today. At least in this universe. (laughs) Please join us again next week, by which point we really hope the Fukushima emergency will be past the worst. All that's left for me now is to thank my studio guests, Richard Wakeford, Diana Garnham and Andrew Jack. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.